name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everyone. Hope you had a great week. Thank you for setting your clocks ahead one hour. Pastor John will be back next Sunday and continue on in um, Genesis and the story of Joseph. Hope you've been enjoying that. It's been a wonderful teaching so far. I'm thankful for our pastor and just the uh, week in and week out diligence he has to study and to teach us. I'm thankful for that. And of course, when, uh, when he's gone, um, I usually stand in his place here and um, I kind of look at it as like the New Testament. You know, the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, the epistles, it's always doctrine first and then application. I kind of look at when I when I come up here, it's not that John doesn't do application, he does, but when I get to, to come up here, I just kind of want to do like a pop quiz, you know, and, and see if uh, we've been learning from the rich truths and the sound doctrine that he teaches us every week. So this morning, I'm going to uh, teach on Hebrews chapter 13, which are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Um, the book of Hebrews is, is a wonderful book, and if, if you read it, and then you, all of a sudden you come to chapter 13, you're kind of like, Man, how, how did that get there? Well, like I said, it's just like the, the, the New Testament. Uh, it's first doctrine and then duty. It's first the statement of the position, and then it's the practice. You know, um, you know, the main thing about Hebrews, everybody talks about is who wrote it. I don't know. If God wanted us to know, he would have put that in the Bible, but we don't know. Uh, a lot of people think that Hebrews uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. Some believe it's not. Some believe that Paul actually wrote chapter 13 to put it in there for the people. I don't know about that, but it's in the Bible. It's the word of God, and I believe it. Um, so if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're actually going to remember in, in, in the Bible, there was no chapter or verses breakup. So it was just a, a continuous letter. So we're actually going to do our reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, all the way through Hebrews 13, verse 6. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And may he bless his word to his people like the song we just sang. Take the word and plant it deep down inside of us so that it may bear fruit. That's the goal. The word of God reads as follows. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not, neglect, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, immoral, and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Hebrews 13 was not just a chapter that was added on. It's actually the climax of the book. You have in, in Hebrews, you've got chapters 1 through 10 that talks about Jesus and how he is superior to all, to everything. Jesus is the Lord of all. You have in chapter 11 examples of faith, how men and women lived out their faith because of this great glorious doctrine. And then in chapter 12, it tells us that we are now a part of those who are in Christ. We are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then we come to chapter 13, and because of all this glorious truths and doctrines, here is what is required of you. Here is how one should live because of these truths. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That should be our response to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus to be a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, we live a life of holiness and honor to God because of what he's done. It's first doctrine and then application. You find that throughout the whole New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 1 through 3, doctrine. 4 through 6, application. Romans 1 through 11, which we all went through with Pastor John here recently. Great, glorious doctrines. And in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, what? Because of all these glorious truths, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is how you should live because of what he's done for you. This is what Hebrews 13 is. Pastor John, week in and week out, I love his heart. I love talking to him. I love how he loves his sheep, how he's such a wonderful shepherd who studies diligently. And folks, if you don't know, a pastor studying, praying, preparing messages after messages is very difficult, hard work. It takes a disciplined lifestyle. He says no to a lot of things because he wants to stand up here and proclaim God's truth to us accurately. And he does that every week. And I'm so thankful for that. And he doesn't do it so that we would just take notes on our bulletin, you know, here, which, you know, we should take notes. But he, he teaches us these truths so that we would grow and mature in Christ. And no matter what part of the Bible we go through or he teaches You can apply that to your life. Can you see yourself in the life of Joseph that we've been going through? I can. I've learned a great deal. And he teaches us such wonderful messages, sound doctrine, and I'm thankful for that. But like James says, if all you do is hear the word and don't apply it to your life, it's dead faith. It's useless. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul told the Corinthians, remember they were, they were trying to get all these spiritual gifts and speak in tongues and prophecy and miracles and stuff like that to look holier than thou. And Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 13 too. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains 
but have not love, I am nothing. You could have prophetic powers. You can know all prophecy that God's ever declared. You can understand all the mysteries and knowledge of the Bible. You could have faith as to remove mountains. But if you do not have love, it's nothing. So here's a question I want to ask you before we begin. Is my love, this is what I want you to ask yourself, is my love for the brethren keeping pace with my growing intellectual knowledge of the truth? Week in and week out, we come and we grow spiritually. Is your love walk for your brethren in Christ growing the same way as your intellectual, intellectual knowledge of the word of God? That's the question I want to ask ourselves. What a shame to be sitting under great biblical truths being taught, growing spiritually, but yet not walking in love towards one another. What a shame. If all we do is focus on doctrine, and I love doctrine, I'm thankful for doctrine, and we need doctrine, but if all we do is focus on doctrine without the applications, what we get is a big head, and we become spiritually prideful. Paul told the Corinthians also this in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Builds up. That's the goal. We should have knowledge. But if all we do is have knowledge, we get a big, huge balloon head. And we're spiritually prideful, and everybody's wrong, and I'm right. But love, like Paul was telling the Corinthians, all these gifts are for building up the body. Encouraging the brethren, helping the brethren. So we're going to take a quiz this morning through Hebrews chapter 13 and take notes and, and examine your lives. The main command in Hebrews 13 is let the love of the brethren continue. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. And in the next five verses, it shows us what that looks like. Let me read to you Hebrews 13.1, the amplified version. It kind of brings it out a little bit here. Hebrews 13, 1 in the Amplified Version says this, let love for your fellow believers continue and be a fixed practice with you. Never let it fail. That's the present imperative. Let it be a continuing, ongoing thing. Let it not be a one-time thing, but it should continue. It should grow. It should mature. As you are growing in knowledge of doctrine and the word of God, your love for your brethren also should be growing. It's not supposed to stop. Brotherly love is the Greek word philadelphia. It is composed of two root words, phileo, which means tender affection. Tender affection and adelphos, which actually means brother or from the same womb. So if you put that together, it's brotherly love. This means to have great affection for those who came from the same womb. We need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ for, for though they are not physically from the same womb, but spiritually we have all been reborn through the same womb, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Read that again real quick. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father 
loves whoever, whoever, whoever has been born of him. This means that if you love God, you will love those who have loved him and are born of his spirit. This is what John is saying. If you've been born of God, you love the Father and you love everyone who has been born of him. The love of the brethren also proves that you are born again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. So the love of the brothers also proves that you have been born again. And then it says here, let brotherly love continue. This means to last. It means to endure. It means not to perish. It's not to go away. It implies that it's already been there. The Hebrews were actually doing this because in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 10, the writer says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So they were showing brotherly love to their brothers who were suffering great persecution and had to flee for their lives. But he was reminding them to let that continue, to continue to stir it up, and it's not to perish. You know, we have a lot of great starters in the Christian so-called race. We've got a lot of great starters, but very few finishers. They get out and run the race called the Christian life, and they think it's going to be an easy, smooth race, and all of a sudden you hit hurdles, disappointments, persecutions, sufferings. Very few people finish. You become a Christian. You remember that, right? When you were born again, you, you had this great zeal. You had this love for God. You had this love for the word. You loved being around others. You loved going to home Bible studies and fellowshipping with one another. Or you just get married. Remember that? Your life is so great. You're so glad you're married. You're in love. Everything is going perfect. And then you come to the part where they say the honeymoon's over. And reality sits in. Life sits in. Work, children, finances, problems. And all of a sudden, the love just kind of disappears goes away. Like the righteous brother said, you've lost that love and feeling. <laughs> it does. It happens. And the writer here is telling us, don't let that happen. We do live in a world. We do have to work. We do have families. We do have finances. We do have persecutions and sufferings and problems and troubles. But don't let this interfere for your love of the brethren. This should be a continual act of us who are Christians. Let it continue. Next to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, biblical love is a supreme mark of a Christian. That's how you can tell who is a Christian and who's not, by their love walk, by their love for their brethren. Listen to what John Calvin said. We can only be Christians if we are brethren. We can only be Christians if we are brethren. If we don't consider each other brethren, then we're not Christians. John Calvin also observed, listen to this, but this precept, the brotherly love and let it continue, is generally very needful, for nothing flows away so easily as love. 
When everyone thinks of himself more than he ought, he will allow to others less than he ought. And then many offenses happen daily, which causes separations, end quote. And you know, a lot of times I've heard from people who have left churches, their number one reason is because I don't fit in. I don't feel welcomed. I don't feel a part of these groups or these people. So they end up leaving a church. And that's, that, that shouldn't be. I mean, if, you, if, if you're a member of this church and you're talking to believers and, and one another, that's great. But if you see a visitor for the first time here, leave that conversation and go to that visitor or that brother or sister and welcome them and get to know them and include them. We're the body of Christ. That's what we're to do. Nothing flows away so easily as love. Amen? There are 55, 55 New Testament commands to love. Let me just read you a few here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So one of the byproducts of obeying the truth is your love for each other. When you're loving one another, you are obeying the truths. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what is, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to do this more and more. And this is under the actual heading in the Bible of a mark of a true Christian, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. I don't think it's going to be up there, but listen to this one. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. This is to be our lifestyle. This is to be a continually ongoing processes, and we're not to let it stop. So is your love for the brethren growing as much as your intellectual knowledge of the word of God every Sunday? That's the test. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you don't need more love. You don't need to walk around and try to build it up. You don't need to say, boy, I wish I had more love for my husband or for my wife or for that brother or that sister. You just need to use it because it's already been deposited. Once you were saved, once you were born again from the Spirit of God, his love was deposited in your heart. And when you use that and do that, that's evidence you're born again. And love can be a costly thing, right? It's costly. It's time-consuming. It messes with your schedule. Listen to 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Our example is to be like Christ, right? We want to be like Christ. He laid down his life for the brethren. Therefore, what should we do? Our response should be laying down our lives for our brethren. Therefore, we be Christ-like. Lay down. It's the Greek word tethemi, and it means to put down or to bend down or kneel down. You see the humility in those meanings right there? To kneel down. Jesus 
willingly came down and kneeled down and bent down and loved the brethren. Jude 21. I love this. I love the whole book of Jude. It says to keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Which means you can lose that. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Let me give you quickly three things that will not keep you in the love of God. Real quick, okay? Jesus said that the root cause of loveliness is sin among Christians. Sin is the cause of our loveliness. In Matthew 24, 12, he said this, And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So here's three things that will not keep you in the love of God. Number one, self-love or selfishness. Jesus was willing to serve anyone Matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 2, we all know this, right? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any partation in the Spirit, any affection of sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything that is selfish or is going to make you boastful and proud. But in humility, kneeling down, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Self-love will kill the love of the brethren. One writer wrote this, that the mind of Christ is summed up in three ways. The selfless mind, the sacrificial mind, and the serving mind, the selfless mind, the sacrificial mind, and the serving mind. You know, I think of the time when Jesus was walking and, and all the people were gathering around him and Jay Iris came and, 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 and poked him and said, hey, hey, Jesus, will you come to my house? And my daughter's sick and she's at the point of death. Can you come and heal her? I mean, Jesus could have very easily said, I'm busy. You know, take a number. Get in line. There's only one Messiah, and I'm him. But he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? Let's go. And he went to Jairus' house and healed his daughter. He always had time for people. Always. And you could trace all conflicts back to selfishness, right? James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? These sinful passions, these desires of selfishness that war within you. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask it wrongly to spend it on your passions. Self-love will kill the brother in love. Number two, which is almost like it, pride. Pride will kill the brotherly love. All pride is is that I know better than God and what's best for me, and I will not obey his word. I'm not going to love that brethren. He's a jerk. He doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve my love. Whatever it might be, pride is a killer. That has to be crucified out of us. Nonstop. 
Philippians 2, 3, right? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So humility is not, listen to this, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but is really not thinking of ourselves at all. That's what humility is. I don't have time for this. They always seem to call at the wrong time. I'm busy. Don't let pride kill the brotherly love because it will. Jonathan Edwards said, if we exalt ourselves, if we exalt ourselves, then God will take care of the humiliation for he promises to humble the proud. Don't let him do that. He'll humble you. Last one. I want to spend a little time on this one. A sectarian spirit. A sectarian spirit. What is that? Sectarian actually means this, narrow-minded. Adhering to a a particular sect or a particular doctrine. As one writer put it, listen to this. For some reason, God determined to save people who do not agree with me on every point of doctrine. You notice that? God has chosen to save people who do not agree with me 100% on doctrine. He does that. This is a killer to brotherly love, and this is what's happening in the church a lot today. We must have unity in the body, because listen to what God declared himself at a Psalms 133. Behold, and how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Not just talking about us here in this building, but we're talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches throughout the world. We must have unity. Listen to what Calvin said, that the unity of his servants is so much esteemed by God that he will not have his glory sounded forth amidst discord and contentions. He will not put his glory there where there is contentions and discords between brothers and sisters in Christ because they disagree on certain points of doctrine. One commentator put it like this. Listen to this. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) It's true, huh? Can you imagine the kind of testimony we give to the world, to the non-believers, when they see brothers and sisters fighting? And gossiping about one another. Can you imagine what type of testimony that shows them of who our God is? The, one, the, the, the number one name I hear for Christians amongst the heathen is hypocrites. You hear that too? Hypocrites. You say one thing and do another. You claim to live this type of life, yet you show this type of life. Who wants to be a part of that? Nobody does. Remember that we are here to be a testimony of the light. We should show the heathen how wonderful and how awesome our God is and how we can get along amidst difficulties, how we're not always fighting. Augustine said this, in essentials, unity. Amen? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. Liberty. In all things, Charity. That's the great Augustine right here. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is right after the doctrine. Now here comes the application, okay? I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you remember when God opened your eyes to the doctrines of grace? I didn't always know that. I didn't always believe that. People were patient with me until I came to the understanding, until God opened my eyes to that. There are still people who, you know, have a hard time with the doctrines of grace and election as we do teach here and stuff like that. But, you know, we, we get to the point where it's like, boy, I just wish they could come to our church. And if they could just get to our church, then they would be changed or whatever like that. And I do. I love our church. I'm thankful for our church, and I love our church. But you know, other people like their church also. They get help. They worship God there. Those churches that preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they get help there. They like their church. We're brothers in Christ. Some people don't want to come to church because they play electric guitar. Okay. Some people don't want to come to church because all they do is sing hymns. Okay. But on the non-essentials, liberty. But on essentials, unity. But in all things, charity. All true believers in Christ Jesus belong to one body, whether they're Pentecostals or Charismatics, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist. Although they don't hold the same beliefs as we do, we should realize that they are all one in Christ if they put their trust and faith in the work of Christ. But there's a lot of bickering and battering and fighting, and the brotherly love is not continuing because of a sectarian spirit you don't believe like I do. That will kill brotherly love. Now, the great George Whitfield, I, I love this story. George Whitfield and John Wesley were great buddies, great buddies in school and stuff like that. Whitfield, of course, was a committed Calvinist. John Wesley was an Arminian, okay? And Wesley tried, it says right here, that Wesley tried to argue with Whitfield on these issues. And Whitfield wrote, to this, uh, wrote this to Wesley in response to what Wesley had said. There was arguing, Calvinist Arminians, and you still have that today. But listen to George Whitfield's letter in response to John Wesley about this uh, matter. He said this, My honored friend and brother, hearken to a child who is willing to wash your feet. You see the humility there? Hearken to a child who is willing to wash your feet. I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, if you would have my love confirmed towards you. Why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it, will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensible take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soil, which I pray God may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus. And whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate that to others. End quote. There is a response of brotherly love right there. God has revealed this to us differently. But how glad that the enemy would be to see us divided over this matter. You preach Christ crucified, how God has revealed it to you. I'll preach Christ crucified, how God's revealed it to me. But let's not break up because of this. That was a great response right there. We could learn a lot from that. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Listen to Kent Hughes' comment, uh, commentary on Acts 4.32 I just read. Ken Hughes says, quote, This does not mean these believers saw everything eye to eye. It is wrong to suppose, as sadly some do, that when believers dwell in unity, they will carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same lifestyles, educate their children the same way, have the same likes and dislikes. They will become Christian clones. The fact is, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying mindsets a church can have because it instills a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with lethal force. One of the wonders of Christ is that he honors our individuality while bringing us into unity, end quote. They don't have to be like us. They don't believe some things like we do or teach here. But if we're brothers in Christ, our love should continue for one another. Amen? All right. Now, how do we let brotherly love continue? Verse 2 on Hebrews chapter 13. This is how we let brotherly love continue, by showing hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hospitality in the Greek actually means lovers of strangers, love for strangers. It's taking a genuine interest in others and making them feel welcomed and at ease. And in Hebrews, what the writer is writing about is back in those days, a lot of uh, men were traveling ministers. And if they had to stay in inns, it was very dangerous for them because there was a lot of robberies and there was a lot of prostitution there. So the writers here is talking about showing hospitality and that these people would take these traveling ministers in and they didn't know them. They were completely strangers. They knew that they were messengers of God teaching the Bible, something like that, but they would open their house to them. They would cook them meals. They would give them a bed to sleep in and they would house them. This is what it means to show hospitality to strangers. How about 3 John verse 5 through 8? Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on the journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Great scripture right there. You know, Pastor John um, goes to Africa every year, and he goes down there for three weeks, and they train the pastors down in Africa to teach correct doctrine because the prosperity gospel is just big time over there, and it's the wrong gospel. Pastor John goes over there. Well, you know, it, it takes a lot of money to get to Africa and stay there for three weeks, stuff like that, but he has a brother who does not come who does not go to this church, every year he pays financially for Pastor John to go down there. It's like 5000 bucks. Even though he can't go, he sows. And that's credit to his account. That's fruit to his account. Outside this church, he, he willingly, it's, it's showing hospitality. I, I know what you're doing down there. I believe in that, and I want to pay your way for that. That's brotherly love. That's showing hospitality. He says here, do not neglect to show hospitality. This could be understood in terms of active help, not just sympathy. 
This is in terms of active help, doing something about it. Matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 4 9, he tells us to show hospitality to one another. This is 1 Peter 4 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Ah, we're to do it without grumbling. 1 John chapter 3, 16 through 18. We read this a little bit earlier, but let me continue on. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now watch this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, then how does God's love abide in him? Explain that. We know love by laying down lives for one another, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And if anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet we close our heart to that, then how does the love of God remain in us? It doesn't. And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not just sympathy for the persecuted brother or whatever suffering they're going through, whatever need they have, oh, I'll just pray for you. But if you have the world's good, give it to them. That's what he's saying. That's when you know the love of God's in you. That's laying your life down for the brethren. Not just praying for him, which is great. But if you've got the means to help him and he hasn't eaten in a week, yeah, you could pray for him, but why don't you pray for him after you feed him a meal? Amen? This is the body of Christ. This lets brotherly love continue, and this is showing hospitality. And we always, don't, don't forget this, we always minister to the Lord when we show brethren and strangers hospitality. Always. As Mark read this morning, right? Matthew 25. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. Watch this now. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. When do we do this? When do we ever see you hungry? When do we ever see you as a stranger? What did he say? When you've done it to the least of the brethren, you have what? You've done it unto me. It's as if you're helping the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if you don't do that and you turn that stranger away, it's as if you are turning the Lord Jesus Christ away. That's what he read this morning in Matthew 25. That's exactly what Jesus said. So you never know who you're showing hospitality to, right? He says right here that you've even, some people have entertained uh, angels. So he's talking about Abraham when the three men were walking along and Abraham offered them food and built a tent and, and gave them hospitality. And two of them were angels. And the third one was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he didn't even know it. So you never know who you're entertaining. It might be somebody that God's brought along in your path that could bless your life. And an opportunity to show hospitality not only to the stranger, but to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what we do things for, right? We do things for God, and we do them to people for the glory of God. Number three here, we show brotherly love, and it continues by showing sympathy for those who are in prison or those who have been ill-treated. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The, the love of the brethren is to manifest itself in sympathy for the sufferers. And they were doing this. Matter of fact, if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, the writer says this, But recall the former days when you were enlightened, 
you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's like the church in Acts, the early church. They, just con- they considered nothing that they had their own. They freely and willfully gave it to whoever had need of it. Oh, to be like that again? To not be so selfish and it's mine and I don't want to part with it. But to have that true, genuine love for the brethren demonstrated and actively helping out the person. Those who are in prison or mistreated, and the context here is actually these Christians were being persecuted and suffering for their faith in Christ. Now, we don't have that today yet. We do in other parts of the world. But here locally, we don't get thrown in prison for our belief in Christ. Of course, that could change. But think of the golden rule, like Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do, do also to them. What if you were in prison? What if you got thrown in prison for your faith in Christ? What if you were locked down in a cell, had no food, had no visitors, no nothing? How would you want to be treated? Would you want somebody to come visit you? I would. How about if you were starving? How about if you just lost your job and lost everything and you had no food? Would you like it if somebody offered you food and filled your stomach? I would. Put yourself in their place. How would you want to be treated if you were in their shoes? The same way, right? Absolutely. So therefore, remember those who are in prison. I love prison ministry. I wish I could do it more. I love to go down there and help those those men who are locked up, who are longing for the word of God being taught. And I think we do have some, some people here that go down into the prisons. But what a blessing, man. You'll come back so fulfilled. You'll come back so rich. You'll, you'll want to keep doing it. And they, they wait every week for you to come down so you can just bring encouragement. Or you may bring, you know, uh, some shirts or whatever you could bring to help them, to remember them. Because if I was in your place, I'd want the same thing. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is letting us know. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul says, If one member suffers, what? I'll suffer together. If one member is honored, I'll rejoice together. Proverbs 21, 13, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So how can we show mercy to those in prison or who have been treated poorly? Number one, just be be there for them. Just be a source of encouragement. Go and let them know that you love them and that they're loved and somebody's there for them. That's all it takes. Just be there for them. How about giving aid? How about helping people who've been mistreated? Maybe people who have lost jobs. Um, Colossians 4.8, um, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4. Remember when the Apostle Paul was in prison, of course, in the Philippians? And he said that no church partners w- partnered with me except you, and you gave aid to me continually. You helped me. You helped my need. That's what the church did for the Apostle Paul. They, they saw his need, and they helped him. They did something about it. So you can just be there for them. You could, you could give aid. You could bring them clothes. You could bring them whatever they have need of. Cook a nice hot meal. Whatever, whatever they're in need of, meet that need. 
also, number three, is you could pray for them. Paul said in Colossians 4.18, he said to remember my chains. This was an appeal for prayer. I want you to remember that I'm in chains or I'm in prison. Can you remember me? Can you pray for me? Can you pray for the will of God to be done? Can you pray that he gives me strength? Can you pray that he gives me whatever I need to go through what I'm going through? That's what the body of Christ does. That's why we get prayer messages sent on the emails where people fill out the prayer cards. Would you pray for me? And truly, generally pray for them and call for the will of God to be done. Lord, they're, they're struggling. Lord, help them. They're in need. They're hurting. They're sick. Lord, I'm, 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 I'm pleading with you on, on their behalf. They're too weak to pray to you, so I'm going to do it for them. That's what the body of Christ is. That's how we do it. And remember also in Matthew 25, as Mark read, Jesus said this, I was in prison and you came to me. When do we see you in prison? When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Amen? I got to get going here. Last two have to do with uh, responsibility to ourselves, okay? One other way we can let brotherly love continue is verse 4. Let the marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Wow. The word here for honored is precious. Let marriage be held as precious to all. We should look at marriage as precious because God has ordained it that way because it is precious. Let's not forget the context of the chapter here. Let brotherly love continue. And what better way than to let brotherly love continue in a marriage between believers? Is your marriage honorable to God? Is it honoring God today? God has established marriage. He has established it, one man and one woman. And he saw, the Bible says, that it was not good for man to be alone. So he made a helpmate for Adam. He made a woman. He didn't make two women or three women. He made a woman, a suitable helpmate for Adam. And God has designed that. That is good. It is complete. And that's why you need to prayerfully consider. If you're going to get married or you're thinking about marriage, it's a commitment. It's a lifelong commitment to stay pure and to stay holy and to stay committed until death do us part. It's a serious thing. And it's a serious thing from God because he's ordained it. It's a covenant. He looks at it as Jesus and the church. That type of relationship. They were to become one flesh. Man and woman will become one flesh, which, of course, is a sexual act in marriage. God has designed sex. It's beautiful. It's honorable to God. But he's made it for the man and woman in marriage. And when you do it outside of marriage, it is not honoring to God. And if you're a Christian and you're having sex outside of marriage, you should not be doing that. He made it for the enjoyment of the two inside marriage. God's ideal for one flesh disallows all of these relationships. Homosexuality, polygamy, adultery, premarital sex, fornication, prostitution. These are all forbidden. Like the forbidden tree in the garden. Don't go near that. 
do not eat of this tree. For if you do, you will surely die. We dishonor marriage by having sexual relations outside of the marriage covenant. That's how we dishonor marriage. And we have to be like Adam, that when God put Adam in the garden, he says, I want you to keep it. I want you to protect it. I want you to guard it. We have to build a fence around our marriages. We have to put a hedge around our marriages. Since God has has ordained sex within the marriage and made it enjoyable for the husband and wife, he will judge those who practice sex outside of marriage and those in the marriage covenant who sleep with anyone other than their spouse. Talking about brotherly love, right? Let brotherly love continue. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Let it continue. Continue doing it more and more, right? They were practicing this. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This was from the Lord Jesus himself. Watch this now. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now watch this. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Let brotherly love continue. Do not transgress or wrong your brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you now for God has not called us for, for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So when you have sexual relationships outside of marriage or you sleep with another person other than your spouse, it doesn't disregard you only. It disregards God, and he will judge these types of people. Let the marriage be held in honor among all. Ephesians chapter 5, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. And oh, by the way, let no one deceive you of empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God takes sexual purity very, very serious. And if we're born of his spirit, we should too. Amen? Amen. Evangelicals are not doing well in this sexual purity area. Let me give you some polls here. In a poll in Leadership Magazine, they found that since a leader has entered church ministry, okay, since he's entered uh, church ministry, 23% of pastors had done something with someone other than their spouse that they considered sexual inappropriate, 23%. 12% admitted to having extramarital intercourse. These are ministers of the gospel. Among those who are not pastors, they said that the figure doubles. And watch this, 20% of pastors admitted to looking at sexual-orientated media at least once a month, and this was before the Internet. How high has that number risen? 
I believe that this is the area where Satan attacks the body the most, and we must protect our marriage and our purity from sexual immorality. Listen to what David Gusick said. The enemy of our souls wants to do, listen to this now, he wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the marriage bed, and he wants to do everything he can to discourage sex inside the marriage bed. We need to recognize this strategy and not give a foothold among us. He wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the bed, and he wants to do everything he can to discourage sex inside the bed, and we are not to give place to that. Amen? All right. How do we let brotherly love continue? I'm going to close on this one. Keep your life free from the love of money. Contentment. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Charles Spurgeon said this, I have been in a lot of testimony meetings, and I've heard a lot of people share how they've sinned, and I've had people come to me and make confession of sin, but in all of my life, I have never had one person confess the sin of covetousness to me. Never. The love of money will produce a false sense of trust and a substitute for faith in Christ. Just ask Solomon, who was the richest man there ever was, right? Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to detest. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle towards heaven. You ever felt that? Ecclesiastes 5.10, he said this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Money's not going to provide for you. It's not going to give you that thing that you want, that contentment deep inside your soul. It lies. It's false. Money is not supposed to have you. You're supposed to have money. And by the way, let me remind you that you are stewards of what God has given you. And you will give an account to God if you're a good or bad steward. Be wise with your money. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. God has promised to take care of your need. Is there anything that you don't have right now that you need that God has not taken care of? Can anybody say, I have this need and God hasn't met it yet? Talking about need, not want. Talking about need. Is there not? What else do we need? This life is perishing. You get more money and before you know it, it's gone like the wind. And it didn't bring that contentment. Be satisfied with what you have. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that loving money is trusting in the uncertain riches rather than the living God. And one writer wrote this, if you focus on material things and your getting will never catch up with your wanting. If you focus on material things, your getting will never catch up on your wanting. You remember these Hebrews were persecuted. They were scattered. They had to leave. They had to leave all their belongings behind. I don't know what, what the issue was here. Maybe they were just trying to come back and get that. And the writer was saying, listen, be content with what you have. Be, just be content with what you have. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this, Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's confidence. It's peace. I don't make enough money. Yes, you do. God is providential, right? 
He's the one that allows us to get riches. He's chosen some to be more rich than other people. You have food, clothing, shelter. What do we need? What do we need? Get our eyes off the world and get them on eternity. You know, one of the reasons why we should really want more money, according to 1 Timothy, is that we would be able to give to those who are in need. Tell them who are rich in this world not to be trusting in their riches because they will leave. You find contentment in these words. Keep your life free from the money and be content with what you have. And here's how you will find the contentment. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And because he will never leave us nor forsake us, which is his promise, then we may confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? If you have Jesus Christ this morning, you are the richest person in the world. If your name is written in the book of life, you are the richest person in the world. You have great riches. Oh, no, many people that are millionaires and billionaires that would give it all away to have peace of mind. We have the mind of Christ. We have peace of mind. We know. Consider all these things rubbish. I've got eternity. I've got heaven. I've got Christ. In the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain and illness, whatever may be, I have confidence in Christ. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. So I can boldly say he's my helper. What can man do unto me? Now, if you don't have Christ this morning, it's a different story. Let me take you back to Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for, the, for receiving a kingdom. Matter of fact, I'm going to start at 25 real quick, then I'm closing. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns them from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, watch this, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Jesus is coming again. And if you don't have Christ, he is going to shake. He's going to shake the earth and the heavens. And if you are not found in Christ this morning, beloved, it's not a good thing. I don't know some of you. I can't see the hearts. Only God does. But if you're here this morning, I plead with you. Come to Christ. Throw down your pride. Quit trying to rely on your own works, that you're good enough for it. You're not. You're not perfect, and it requires perfectness for heaven. And there is one who is perfect, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who put their faith and trust in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Come to Christ this morning if you haven't by his spirit, enabling you to do that. Throw away, throw away your life and come to him and cling to him and he will save you, the Bible promises. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we glorify your name in all the earth. You are so wonderful. 
You are so merciful and you are so gracious. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for saving me. I boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. I know without him, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I can't live. I can't think of the thought of people being separated from you, going to hell. Would you open their eyes? Would you open their ears, Father? Please, you're the only one that can do this. I plead with you. Don't let anyone perish. Don't let them leave this life without Christ. I pray that they would see the loving mercy of Jesus and what he has accomplished on the Christ of Calvary. Father, as your children, we need your mercy and grace. We cannot go another day apart from it. I thank you that you've allowed us to be a part of the body. Although physically we've come from different wombs, spiritually we've all come from you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that the word that was spoken this morning would be planted deep down inside of us and it would bear fruit. That we would let brotherly love continue by showing hospitality, by visiting those in prison or who have been mistreated, by having our marriages honoring you and to stay sexually pure and to not covet, but to be content with what we have because you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we thank you for that great promise. We trust in it. And Father, I pray that you were glorified and your son was highly exalted and lifted up in our service this morning. Continue to be with us in our worship as we sing to you and as we gather afterwards for fellowship and to talk. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. And we love you, Father God. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.